to that later. What's your favourite book of the Bible? Pop quiz. What's your favourite book of the Bible? James. James? Oh, James is coming up in September. There you go. Who said John? It's a good one. It's a good one. Psalms. Load of hymns. Hebrews. Very good. Daniel. A lot of action. Yes. Genesis is a good one. Great stories in Genesis. Esther. One for the ladies. Such a time as this. Not just for the ladies, no, of course not. Job is a good one. A lot of questions and then God in his sense of humour at the end suddenly makes a big appearance. Absolutely. Oh, it's me. That frightened me. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody ever mentions Leviticus. Do they? What's that all about? It's horrible. Well... See, we get excited about Genesis and all the stories, don't we? And then we get into Exodus. Freedom from slavery. God's people released the Ten Plagues and the Red Sea. And then the Ten Commandments come and all that stuff after that. And then all of Leviticus. Oh, my life. It's bogged down in details and we'd like to skip through it or speed read it or not read it at all, don't we? It's never our favourite book of the Bible. I hope that by the end of the day, you'll be rushing back to Leviticus and getting very, very excited about it. Because we've been working through Galatians. Don't feel guilty if you don't. We've been working through Galatians. We've been talking about the law and how it's not about the law anymore. It's about Jesus. And we can think of the law, all the stuff at the end of Exodus and all the way through Leviticus. We can think about it as it's a bit of history, helps for a bit of context help set the scene, or actually, since we're Christians today and Jesus has already come, it's null and void, so I don't need to know anything about it. We can have that kind of attitude to it, can't we? Or we can just be reading through Leviticus and get so swamped by all the details, all the different guilt offerings and atonement and this and that, and what they're supposed to look like, and what happens if you've got leprosy, and we just can't keep up, and we go skip to the action again, don't we? Skip to the action scenes. Well, what was the point of the law? If that's, that's the case, does it have any relevance to us today? Of course it does. We're not under it. We're not required to live under it. That's the point. That's what Paul's saying here. But when you read it in a whole new context of Jesus, it brings it alive and it's very, very exciting. Because this passage we're going to read today, if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read from verses 15 to 25 of Galatians chapter 3, page 1170, if you've got a blue Bible. Paul talks about the law here. And this whole section, especially in the middle, can get itself bogged down in a lot of legal jargon. And I don't want this to be a boring, dry morning. I want this to be an exciting morning because it's about Jesus and it should always be exciting, shouldn't it? Paul here, he's been spending time going, guys, you foolish Galatians, you bunch of idiots. I love you, but a bunch of idiots because you're adding to Jesus. He then refers back to the promise over Abraham that God will set himself apart a people. And Abraham is the Iraqi guy he chose to be the father of that great nation of his people. Then he introduced the law through Moses. Here's how you should live. This is what it looks like to be set apart for me, to be a holy living people for a holy God. And then Jesus came. And Paul refers to all this. And I don't want you to read this passage and still get a bit confused about what the law is about what he came for, what he's talking about 430 years, Abraham and his promise. We're going to look at the story when Abraham is given the promise by God. We're going to read that story as well, because even that gets a bit weird. 
We'll look at that briefly, then we'll look at the law and find out what the law means to us today and why, because we're free from it, it's even better. Okay, is that all right? Let me pray and then we'll read this passage. Lord, I just pray as we read through this that we recognise this is not just some dry words in a book. This is your living word as you declare. All scripture is useful for teaching, for correction, etc. All scripture, including all those little details in in Leviticus, it's here for a purpose. You've made it available to us in 2013 for a reason. We can get even more excited about you. We can understand more of you. We can know more of you. So Lord, I pray just this morning, we say, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth of you in a greater way that we've never seen before. We pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, notice there's a word that keeps coming up in this section as we read through it. Seven times, it varies between translations, seven times in this passage, the word promise or promises comes up. It's all about God's promise. And we will see throughout history, it has always been God making a promise and God delivering on it. It's all about the promise, the P word, promise. Here we go. Verse 15, Galatians 3. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God with Abraham and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. He's still delivering on it, never given up. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. The mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held in prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Promise, 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 promise. He keeps saying it over again. Did the law set aside the promise to Abraham? Absolutely not. It's a continuation of it. For years, I've had in my head, there's the Abrahamic promise, and then there's another season when it's all different now and we're under the law, the Jews, and then Jesus came and now it's something else entirely, almost like separate bubbles. But really, I don't want to strain the picture too much, but almost imagine it as one long path where it's, I don't know, choose your colour, but yellow for the Abrahamic promise. And then the same path changes colour to red under Moses' law and then it becomes gold when Jesus comes. It's the same path to salvation. It's the same path to God delivering on his promise. It's not God changing his mind and trying something new. Does that help make sense? It's all one thing, which we'll, we'll find out in a minute. 
Let's turn to Genesis 15 and find out about this little story when God makes his promise to Abraham right at the beginning. Abraham, like I say, was a guy from what we know as Iraq today. And God plucked him out, out of obscurity. Who was this guy beforehand? And he goes, you're the one. And he speaks to him. He says, I'm going to make you the father of my people, biologically and spiritually. Go to the promised land. And it's crazy. Abraham is just like, yes, Lord, off he goes. Would you do that? You've got to know you've heard from God, haven't you? Because it's faith. Genesis chapter 15. Let's read the story. A lot of times we read about this, about how his offspring will be vaster than the numbers of stars in the sky. And then it goes on to when God makes seals the covenant and it gets a bit weird and we skip through it. Let's find out what that means. Genesis 15, verse 1. Here we go. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. That was the natural next progression in those days. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir, which happens later. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Where do you even start counting that kind of number? And yet, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Iraq, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of this? Prove to me that you're going to deliver on this. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And here's where it gets a little bit weird. Notice this for starters, they're three years old. They are at prime strength. They're at their peak. They are prime, perfect specimens. Remember that for later. And there it goes. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut, cut in half. I was going to bring some animal parts this morning to demonstrate it, but <laughs> thought it might start smelling in the heat, so I resisted. It's a bit weird, isn't it? What's he doing? So he's got two, lots of pairs of the animal carcasses and the birds separate. And it's all in two rows, with a big gap down the middle. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. This is the 430 years that Paul was referring to the gap between the promise to Abram and the law coming through Moses. He said it would happen, and it happened. But I will punish the nation, Egypt as it turns out, that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. They took their riches with them. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared 
and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And he goes on to list some details of how it would be delivered. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Here is God manifesting himself physically as a brazier and a torch, heat and light. You can see it, you can feel it, he's real, he's here. And he passed through the pieces of animal. What's going on there? For a start, that was his acceptance of the perfect sacrifice. But what used to happen in those days, if I and Julian were back then, and we made a covenant between us, we made a contract between us, the word that Paul used in the original passage for contract, for covenant, is a, the original Greek there is about a legal will that is binding and cannot be broken. And what they used to do in those days, then we make a contract like, I'll give you my piece of land if you give me your daughter for my son, or, or whatever. But you make this contract and you seal it. These days we sign on the dotted line, don't we? In those days they used to do exactly what Abraham did with the animal pieces in two halves, and together, as signing on the dotted line, would walk between the pieces and effectively saying, if I break this covenant, may I be like these animals. If I break this promise to my brother, may I accept the curse that is coming to me for breaking it. How many people have walked through it this time? One. Did Abraham walk through it? No, he was fast asleep. He was even oblivious to it at the time. Only God walks through this. He signs it. He signs this contract himself. He doesn't require it of Abraham. He blesses him as much. And he says, if this promise gets broken, whether it's me or you, if this promise gets broken, I'll take on the curse. That's the God of the universe saying that. I mean this promise and I'm going to deliver it. Even if you break it, I'm willing to be treated like these animals. Remember what happened to Jesus. So when the law comes, is that God casting that to one side? Or is he continuing the same promise that he signed virtually in his own blood by walking between the animal pieces on his own? Do you see? He made that promise and he was not going to let go of that promise. He said to Abraham, I know you're a sinful man. I know your children will be. I know the people who will be welcomed into your family will be because you're all sinners. If anything goes wrong in this promise between us, this contract between us, I'll take it on myself. I'm not letting go of this promise. Isn't that amazing? So what happens when the law comes? After the people have been enslaved for hundreds of years, these are Abraham's nation. They've been in Egypt. They've been treated as slaves. And finally God says, I'm having my people back. And through Moses, he draws them out. You all know the stories of the ten plagues? The kids were watching it last week on Prince of Egypt, weren't they? In the video out the back. The ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and they're all being chased by the Egyptians and they go through the Red Sea. The Egyptians follow and they get washed up when he lets the walls of water come back. And God's people are free from slavery. And he says, right, here we go. Here is the law. These are the rules of holy living. How you can atone for your sins through, through the sacrificial system. I want you to follow these rules to show that you are set apart from me. He's not starting again with a new promise. This is a continuation of the previous promise. Because this is why I've got these. That's facing the wrong way now, isn't it? Ta-da! 
Because the mirror, I want, that's the only reason why I brought this, I want you to remember. The mirror, uh, the law is two things. The law is a mirror and the law is a signpost. The law is a mirror and the law is a signpost. Because we can miss the point. We can think about the Old Testament and that's history. Nothing to do with me now, I've got Jesus. We can still learn more about Jesus by understanding the law when we understand why it came. We can think about rules for holy living. We won't be able to keep up with that. They didn't either. But now it doesn't matter anymore. But we can miss the point. Because it's not about the things I need to do to be right before God, as we keep saying. Because how does the law, when God first delivers the law to Moses, how does he deliver it? What's the first thing? When the Ten Commandments, the crux of the the law come, and then all the details about the earthly tabernacle and about the priest system and the sacrifices, right at the beginning, when he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on the tablets in Exodus 20, what's the first part? That's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. What does he say? Turn. Exodus chapter 20. Ah, I got you thinking. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What's in the previous verse? Here is grace. Here is God proving that he started it. Verse 2 of Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He didn't bring them out of slavery because of what they'd done for him. He brought them out of slavery because he's still delivering on his promise because he loves them. Therefore, I've rescued you. Therefore, here's how to live a holy life. Even the Ten Commandments, even the law starts with grace. Isn't that amazing? And then he delivers the law, and here is why he delivered the law that they could never fulfill. Because it's a mirror. It keeps spinning, doesn't it? Look. It's a mirror. And a signpost. Let's start with the mirror, first of all. What do I mean by this? Because actually, the law is not about how to be saved. The law is to show us our need for it. The law, should I say, is less about salvation and more about our sin. How many people have got up in the morning, got ready for work, gone off to work, and it's halfway through the morning, you go to the toilets, and you see in the mirror, you've got toothpaste all over your face. Anybody done it? Or you cut yourself shaving, you had no idea. And nobody told you. We need mirrors to know what we're like. Does that make sense? And the law is a mirror. Romans 3 verse 20, I'll read it out if you don't want to turn there quickly. Romans 3 verse 20. Here he is, Paul himself again, explaining that the law is a mirror. Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Now, it's there in print. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law showed us, shows us what we're like. Think of our law system in this country. It's there to protect us, isn't it? Criminal law, it's there to protect us. It's there to show us what punishments we'll get if we do anything wrong. Actually, bigger than that, 
The law system in our country shows us what we as a society are capable of. If we weren't, the law wouldn't be there. Does that make sense? How many of us have broken the law? All of you, put your hand up. Oh, no, even if you don't think you have, you have. have. Have you slid on snow or ice outside your house for a muckabout? Yes? You've broken the law? Yeah. Ah. When you were a kid, did you play knockdown ginger? Yes? You've broken the law of our land. It's true. It's against the law. Ladies, have you eaten chocolate on a bus? You've broken the law. You're not allowed to. You naughty ladies. Not allowed to eat chocolate on the bus. Have you eaten Christmas pie, uh, mince pie on Christmas Day? Chances are you've broken the law. Cromwell introduced that law and it's still spurious as to whether it's ever repealed. So no mince pies on December the 25th. Christmas Eve, Boxing Day is fine. Not on the 25th, okay? We've all broken the law. It's bonkers, isn't it? But even then we start thinking, well I have, but only the small laws. And I've broken the speed limit, but at least I haven't killed someone. Don't we? So I'm alright, Jack. That's what we think. But the law, see we think God's moral law, our law of our country, we see it as a, a rope. And there's a few strands are broken, but ultimately it's still intact. Yeah? It's not. It's a chain. And if we break one link, the whole thing's broken. Because no matter how many regulations, stipulations there are in a system of law, if you break one part of it, you are no longer perfect according to the law. And God is perfect. John chapter 2, verse 10. I've got a few little verses I'm flinging out here. John 2, verse 10. Uh, did it? Oh, sorry, no, James 2, verse 10. Sorry, I'm, it's my scribble. I thought that was a bit weird. James 2, verse 10, it's right near the back, just shortly before Revelation and the 1, 2, 3 Johns. After Hebrews, if that helps. James 2, verse 10. Here it is, in black and white again. Don't just take my word for it. James 2, 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So if that's the case, why did God give the law? Because he knew they wouldn't fulfil it. All of them are going to stumble somewhere at some point. All of us would do. All of us do in our country. With the British law as well. So why on earth did he give it? Was he trying to catch them out? Was he being nasty? No, he was still delivering on his promise and he wanted to show his people what they are like and their need for their Messiah. Their need for a perfect sacrifice. So the law is a mirror. It was never meant to save us but it was meant to show us our need for a perfect saviour. Does that help? The law is a mirror. Okay, next up. The law is a signpost. If you can put yourselves back to Galatians chapter 3, where we were to begin with. one one seventy. Galatians chapter 3. And if you look at uh, verse 24, there's an interesting word. So Paul continues and he says, We were held by prisons of the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. It's about being a signpost. 
to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Actually, the better version of that word, leading us to Christ, is actually to say it was a guardian. The ESV uses a guardian. In fact, the new version of the NIV uses guardian as well. The law is a guardian. And that's not just someone who keeps us in one place. Actually, the guardian, the word that Paul uses there, was a member of staff, a servant in the household, whose responsibility it was to take the kids to, to school. The law is a guardian that is meant to lead us to a place of education. The law is a signpost. It points the way to the revelation of Jesus. So remember, like I said, it's like one path, one journey of the promise being fulfilled. There's the Abrahamic promise, Mosaic law, showing us what we're capable of and our need for a saviour, and it leads up to Jesus. So did Jesus abolish the law? No. What does he say? He fulfills it. Let me read out the verse just to prove it's not my clever thinking. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's two ways of understanding fulfill. Because A, he did fulfill the law. Not once did he slip up. Not once did he break the law. He didn't know not to, if he was a lady, eat chocolate on a bus or whatever. He didn't know not to play knock down ginger when he was a kid. He knew. But he fulfilled the law because he's perfect, because he's God. He's the only one who could fulfill it, literally. But also, he means he fulfilled it out of what it was here for, to lead the way to him. It's a signpost. It leads us to the full education, the full revelation of Jesus. Because what is beautiful is in as much as the, the old law was not just, here you are, you're all rubbish, you need a saviour, here he is, he fulfills it. Actually, like a very clever film director, God has put clues throughout the law, echoes of Jesus before he even arrives. So he fulfills it in more, more ways, myriad different ways. Here's a few examples. In the law, the sacrificial system, and there was a high priest who could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on behalf of the people to atone for their sins. Aaron, Moses' brother, was the foremost high priest at the time, 13, 1500 years before Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He entered on our behalf through his sacrifice on the cross into the heavenly realm, into God's God's presence in the throne room on our behalf once and for all. Hebrews 4.14, a great high priest. This is Jesus, a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. So even then, there's a clue. It's great when you see a film and the big twist comes at the end. You want to go and watch it again to look out for all the clues, don't you? You can go back now and you can read Exodus and Leviticus and look for all the clues for Jesus. There's loads. There's a great high priest who had to atone on behalf of the people with a perfect sacrifice. Jesus did it. He's our ultimate high priest. And yet, he didn't do it with another perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. So you see, in the old law system, there's the sacrificial lamb, the unblemished lamb. We no longer... Remember earlier we were talking about the three-year-old heifer and the goat because they were in their peak, in their prime. Jesus, 33 years old, was in his physical prime, perfect, the ultimate unblemished lamb. No longer do we have to start cutting up goats down the front here because it would be a nightmare for Peggy in her cleaning. But Jesus gave himself, the perfect unblemished lamb. 
1 Peter 1 verse 19 says, We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So there's another way he fulfilled the law. Here's another clue. Written many, 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 many centuries before Jesus turned up, there was a clue that he was coming. There's the mobile tabernacle and then the permanent temple. The mobile tabernacle was the, the mobile temple through the desert for God's people. It's a giant tent. The Holy of Holies right in the middle of it. You can read about Exodus, Exodus 25. God gives them the details of how to make it. And then there's the permanent temple that Solomon built. 1 Kings chapter 8 that took its place in Jerusalem. No longer do we have to come to a place. Now we come to a person. In John 1 verse 14 says Jesus made his dwelling among us. And the actual language there is that he pitched his tent among us. He was his own tabernacle amongst his people. A tabernacle of flesh instead of of canvas. He pitched his tent among us. But he takes it to a whole other level as well. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We through the Holy Spirit, are his spiritual temple. It's no longer about a place. That's why I put on our website that the church is not bricks and mortar, roof tiles. The church is the people. We are his spiritual temple being built together in the Holy Spirit, like living stones. And then 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It spells it out for you. The temple is here because of Jesus, who pitched his tent among us. So you see that you can you can look through you can see other other aspects in the law, and actually elsewhere in the Old Testament, the points away to Jesus. Jesus keeps popping up in different ways all the way through the Old Testament. It's like he can't wait to be amongst us. He's so eager, chomping at the bit, early. And Father's going, not yet. Come on, come on, not yet. Oh, Dad, can I? Please, I want to go. The time's not right. He keeps popping up, fiery furnace. Who's that with him in the fiery furnace? Jesus keeps popping up. Before I finish, this is, I understand this can be a bit academic. This can be a lot of information. But I hope it's explained that Leviticus isn't there by accident or just there in passing. The end of Exodus isn't there not for us to read anymore because it doesn't mean anything to us. We can get excited because over and over again, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's there for us to get excited about Jesus. And just to understand, as we now continue through Galatians for the next few weeks, we're going to start to learn more about what it means to be free in Christ and how we can still honour him with holy lives, about what that means for our relationships, for our character. But just remember this. God hasn't kept changing his mind and then finally got it right with Jesus. It was always planned right from the beginning. Even Genesis 3, there's a clue there for Jesus that he's coming and he's going to bruise your heel, Satan. He's taking you down. He's coming. And as part of that promise, God made a promise in his own blood and not Abraham's with Abraham to say, you're going to be a father of my people. I'm going to set them apart for myself. But I know what they're like. So through the law, I'm going to show them so they can find out for themselves what they're like. So when Jesus comes, he fulfills it in such a great way. It is once and for all, forever, made perfect for me. Not because of what they have done, but because of what my son has done. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So then Paul finishes at the end of that section 
End of chapter 3. He finishes with, now that faith in Christ has come, it's no longer about stuff you need to do to show you're set apart, which you're still going to get wrong. Jesus has come. So why do you keep trying to go back to your old ways of trying to do the right stuff to win God's favour and being driven by that? Or getting so guilty when you keep letting him down? Yes, have a conscience. (laughs) That's the Holy Spirit pricking you. You've been sinning. Don't tolerate sin. But I also know you're never going to get it right, he says. Rest in Jesus. Put it this way. Assume you've got a favourite, you might do. Have a favourite pop singer. And you want to be the best fan because you love this pop singer and all their music and who they are and what they look like. You love them so much, you want to be the biggest fan in the world for this pop singer. People do. And you've got your bedroom with all the posters and you read all their books, all the different biographies, some authorised, some unauthorised. doesn't matter. You're going to read up everything you can find out, to find out about this person. You want to know this person more. You read all the websites and the blogs. Maybe you run some of the websites. You learn all their lyrics. You buy all the tickets for their gigs. You want to be right at the front. You want to get a backstage pass to maybe wave at them. You love this person so much. And you're striving to be the biggest fan. You're always trying to keep up with the latest news and the newest picks and, and just trying to be better than the next person and just know this person. I'm going to know them more than you. I'm going to try hard. So whenever I meet them, I'll win them over. If this pop star came to your house, it would be crazy to stay in your bedroom with all your posters and the lyrics and the websites and the albums and all the T-shirts trying to be the biggest fan when you could be downstairs with them in your lounge. It would be crazy to go back to that old life of striving to be the biggest fan when it doesn't matter anymore and with you. So why do we keep striving to be the best Christian I can be and actually lose sight of You can rest in Jesus. You can have a busy life. That's fine. Some of us are meant to have busy lives. It's not a bad thing to have a busy life as long as it's reasonable, healthy. But it's okay to have a busy life. But why have a busy soul? You can still rest in Jesus. I'll leave you with a quote, an acquaintance of mine down in Eastbourne called Glenn Scrivener, Australian evangelist. And he says this, I love this. He says, the difference between law and grace, God's favour, is the difference between is not the difference between a strict and a lenient teacher. We can think that sometimes, can't we? The law is a strict teacher, I'm never going to get it right. Grace is an easy teacher, and I can just go with the flow. He said, the difference between between law and grace is not the difference between a strict and lenient teacher. It's the difference between sitting exams and being fully qualified to practice. Why? Because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done. Rest in him, Christ in me. The more I spend time with him, the more naturally I don't want to sin. The more the things I tend to get tempted by mean less to me. The more I spend time with him, the more I just want to please him and be with him. It's not about me striving to be the best Christian. It's about me, I'm just in love with Christ and I've got no time for the other stuff. It is as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And I still get it wrong. I'm still a plonker. I'm still Steve. I'm still a human. But it's about resting in him. And each time I can come back to him and go, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've screwed up again. But your sacrifice is more than enough because you love me.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you fulfilled the law because I never could have done anyway. Or even a moral law that where I decide what's good and bad and I try to be nice and try to be the best person I can be. I've still got it wrong because I still screw it up. Lord, it's because of you. Because of your work on the cross. Because you love me. Because the promise was put in place long before I came along. The promise was decided to be offered long before Abraham came along. You are a God who promises and you are a God who delivers. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can rest in that. That we can enjoy you. That all of your scripture is God-breathed through your Holy Spirit. That we might learn from all of it and see how all of it ultimately points to you. Because you're the one that life is about. Lord, once again, I pray this every time. I'm going to keep on praying it. Lord, once again, today, tomorrow, next week, next year, let me not lose sight of this. Let me rest in you, dwell in you, read your word, look for you in your word. I just want to know you more, that I might share you more, that I might then live for you more. And it's no longer being drive, being, being driven It's more about stepping into the calling that you have placed over me. That wherever I go, however busy I get, however hard I may labour, I can still rest in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.